I knew that this would be a longer service than normal, and so I prepared accordingly. My sermon is about half as long as it typically is, and you know what that means. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) We are in Acts 16. We have been working our way through the book of Acts. I'm going to wait and read the scripture as um, I move into the move along through the sermon. So let's go ahead and pray. Our God, as we uh, are now going to examine this watershed in history, this turning point where the Apostle Paul left Asia, traveled over to Europe, and as a result. Through the centuries, because of the Apostle Paul planting the gospel so firmly on the continent of Europe, Western civilization rose, um, cloaked and founded, grounded in Christianity. And we are the beneficiaries. God help us to continue to proclaim Christ so that future generations might know Him. We pray in His name. Amen. To begin, I have some questions for the men here in the congregation. Ladies, I don't want to leave you out, but I don't fully know how to include you in the full scope of my questions. And so what I'm going to do is let you figure out how you can make these questions relevant for you. So men, here's the first question. What if you could be the Apostle Paul's assistant in preaching the gospel? What level of suffering would you be willing to endure to have that privilege to be the Apostle Paul's uh, right-hand man as he's going out to preach the gospel? In his second letter to Timothy, Paul told Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Later in this same epistle in 2 Timothy, Paul told Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And near the end of that same letter, Paul reiterated this same thought. He said, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So in order to be Paul's assistant, you will know that suffering will will be woven into the pattern of your day-to-day life. So I ask you that question again. Since you know that suffering comes with being uh, the Apostle Paul's assistant in preaching the gospel, how much suffering will you be willing to endure to have that privilege? Would you be willing to stand up and proclaim Christ in the face of hostile crowds? Would you be willing 
to have church members tell lies about you as they abandon the church. You read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That happened to him all the time. Would you be willing to be threatened with imprisonment? If you were going to be Paul's assistant, you would most certainly have to face at least that level of suffering. Because that's, that's what we know that Timothy faced as Paul's assistant. So I raise the question, how much suffering would you be willing to endure to have that privilege? Now before you answer that question, you need to understand that there's some other suffering that we know about that Timothy went through. He also faced an unusual form of suffering right at the beginning of his ministry with Paul. Look at me, or not look at me, rather take your eyes off of me and look at your own Bibles. Or if you need a, a, uh, a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. In Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, ladies, you know why I did not include you in the list of questions. Timothy was so eager to be useful for the promotion of the gospel that he was willing to be circumcised. Now, he didn't go down to the local hospital and receive any kind of local anesthetic. The Apostle Paul, it says here in our text, verse 3, the Apostle Paul circumcised him himself. We'll hope that Paul had a sharp knife. Now men, I ask you again, are you eager enough to be useful for the promotion of the gospel that you would be willing to suffer to the extent that Timothy was willing to suffer? Now before you answer, I ask you to wait because of the negatives. Now I'm asking you to wait if you're considering, no, I wouldn't be willing to suffer that much. Consider the positives. Let me remind you why Timothy was willing to suffer. Timothy had learned from his grandmother Lois and from his mother Eunice that Jesus Christ had come here to earth to die for his sins. To die in his place. Timothy had learned that he did indeed deserve to die and go to hell that he did not deserve to be in God's presence, that he did not deserve to have God's mercy and kindness. But God, in his free grace, sent his son Jesus Christ. I taught the young people, the the third through fifth grade in Sunday school this morning, through John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world 
God so loved sinners that He gave His one and only Son to come here and die an awful death. And our Lord Jesus didn't just simply die the physical death there on the cross. The Bible says He became sin for us. Why did He become sin for us? So that then He could stand up under the full weight and penalty of God's justice there on the cross. That's the reason the the world turned black for three hours. Because God Almighty was pouring the full extent of His wrath and justice all on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how we can think of it and understand just what this meant. Jesus Christ paid for all of my sins and all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe in Him in the space of three hours. That is some intense, that is some concentrated justice that was coming to Jesus Christ. And He bore our sins. We should have been on the cross. He died for us. Timothy knew that. And he was willing to go to any lengths, to suffer any um, pain, in order that he might proclaim his Savior Jesus. And not only that, Timothy knew that there were people living uh, all over the world without Jesus. And they were dying without Jesus. And they were suffering eternal torments without Jesus. And he was willing to go any lengths to proclaim the grace and the glory of Jesus to complete strangers who were living and dying without Jesus Christ. In our day and age, people haven't stopped dying. In our day and age, people have not stopped going to hell if they die without Jesus. As I mentioned in the the prayer, the theologians have, have found it to be not fashionable to talk about hell. But they're ignoring the subject, doesn't make it untrue. There are people living all around us who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ and of His grace. To what lengths are we willing to go to tell them? To what extent are we willing to suffer to make sure that they hear? I have my copy of Charles Spurgeon's book, The Soul Winner, that I read several years ago. And he has a chapter on the cost of being a soul winner. And I'm really tempted to read the whole chapter. And I won't do that. But I do want you to hear a little of what he has to say. Because he was a soul winner. He was, he was a man who was used to bring many people to Jesus Christ. And he knew the cost of being a soul winner. So he says, I want to say a word to you who are trying to bring souls to Jesus. You long and pray to be useful. Do you know what this involves? Are you sure that you do? Prepare yourselves then to see and suffer many things with which you would rather be unacquainted. 
experiences which would be unnecessary to you personally will become your portion if the Lord uses you for the salvation of others. An ordinary person may rest in his bed all night, but a surgeon will be called up at all hours. A farming man may take his ease at his fireside, but if he becomes a shepherd, he must be out among the lambs and bear all weathers for them. So even Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For this cause we shall be made to undergo experiences that will surprise us. He says elsewhere, you must go through the fire if you were to pull others out of it. And you will have to dive into the floods if you were to draw others out of the water. And then the last quote, he says, brothers, brothers, the knife of affliction is sharp, but salutary. You cannot delight in it. But, may, but faith may teach you to value it. Are you not willing to pass through every ordeal if by any means you may save some? Spurgeon gets right to the point. It is clear that the promotion of the gospel indeed is costly. But it's worth it. Promotion of the gospel also must be God's work. You know, there's a lot of effort that has been taken to take the suffering out of the promotion of the gospel. But personal suffering and the promotion of the gospel go hand in hand. Jesus said that if you will be fishers of men, that you will also undergo suffering. Matthew chapter 10. I believe that the suffering that God will that I believe the suffering that God will require of us will not cause us to lose our life. As the author of Hebrews said, you've not suffered even yet to the point of shedding blood. I think that the suffering that God is going to call us to is a lot of knee pain. I believe God wants us to be on our knees crying out to Him in prayer continuously before we will see significant swaths of people coming to Jesus Christ here in this country. Because God wants us to recognize that the promotion of the gospel is His work and not ours. It's not a matter of a slick advertising campaign it's not a matter uh, necessarily of, of good organization. Yes, we need the organization. But the work of promoting the gospel is God's work and, and, uh, and His primarily. I want you to see something I saw this week. No commentator mentioned it, so I'm probably out on a thin limb here. Um... If you will turn back in your copy of the scriptures to Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. This, Paul, in our text here in Acts 16, he's, on, he's gone out on his second missionary journey. But we're, in Acts 13, we're seeing the beginning of his first missionary journey. 
and how it started. Acts 13, 1-3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. It's clear in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit initiated this missionary journey. In fact, before the Holy Spirit told them to leave, they were worshiping and fasting. And after the Holy Spirit told them to leave and set apart Barnabas and Saul, uh, then they worshipped and fasted even more. Now, compare that to Acts 15, verses 36 through 41, the beginning of the second missionary journey. Acts 15, beginning with verse 36, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark uh, with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Acts 13, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're fasting. And the Holy Spirit sent them out. And then they prayed and, and, and fasted more. Acts 15, Paul says, let's go on another missionary journey. And then they had a disagreement so sharply that they had to split company. And then they were commended um, by the, the church um, to the grace of the Lord, and they left. Can you see a difference here? Am I reading too much into this? For support of my thesis that I don't think that Paul and Barnabas sought the Lord as they should have, I want to refer you to our text, Acts 16, verses 4 through 9. They went on their way, and as they were on their way uh, through the cities, and this is not, Barnabas and Mark have gone um, down to Cyprus, the island, but Paul has gone north, up through uh, Asia Minor, up through the Galatian area, and so as, as and Paul is with um, Silas and Timothy, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem Council from Acts 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Pergia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by by Mysa, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. It seems to me, if God was in front of Paul rather than chasing 
behind him. It seems to me that there would not have been so many changes in their plans. Paul's going his way and, and, and it says twice. The Spirit of Jesus stopped him here and then he went somewhere else. The Spirit of Jesus stopped him there. And then finally, uh, God sends him a vision in the night, maybe a dream of this Macedonian man saying, go over uh, to Europe, go over to Greece, Macedonia. And Paul... Um, Paul finally, uh, or God finally got Paul set on the course that he wanted him to take. I would not describe Paul as a person who failed to pray about the direction that he should go in his missionary journeys. I would think that he is a prayerful man. In fact, I am certain that Paul prayed before he went on his journey. But did he pray until he was certain of what God wanted him to do? He knew on that first missionary journey where he used to go, what he was to do. You don't hear anything about this in the second missionary journey. That raises a question in my mind. What does it say about our own need to really pray about the ministry that we do here at Westminster? Can we be certain that we are going in the right direction if we have not poured ourselves out before God in prayer and really discerned what He is wanting us to do? Can we be certain that we are doing the things that God wants us to do? My point here is the promotion of the gospel must be God's work. We need to rely on Him and make sure that we are doing what He wants us to do when He wants us to do it. The only way it can be God's work is if we are leaning on Him in prayer. And then lastly and very quickly, the promotion of the gospel must focus on proclaiming the gospel. Since God is sovereign, He was able to set Paul back on the right course. Paul gets the message and he immediately heads to Macedonia. He wakes up in the morning after having this vision and he, he, he sets off directly west, goes to the edge of the Aegean Sea, catches a boat, and goes over to Macedonia. Now notice in verse 9 what the Macedonian man is, is requesting. Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help. He's simply requesting help. But how does Paul interpret this plea for help? Verse 10, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The help he is is going to give them is preaching the gospel. So many mission trips these days focus on acts of mercy and on building programs. And the same thing is true about mercy ministries here in the community. Um, there, There are a lot of people doing a lot of good things for other people. But if it is divorced from the proclamation of the gospel, it is all for naught. We used to support um, Metropolitan Ministries as a congregation. And they de-emphasized their preaching of the gospel. And so we shifted our support to Cynthia Pinckney 
because the leading edge, she's doing a lot of good things, but she is also proclaiming Jesus Christ to those whom she is helping. A person's ultimate need is to know Jesus Christ. One of the things I love about this congregation is this congregation goes to great lengths to help people who are in need. I love observing how this congregation steps up when a real need is presented. Let's have that same tenacity. Tenaciousness. You know what I'm saying. That same fervor in proclaiming the gospel to people who are without Jesus Christ. Again, a person's greatest need, their ultimate need, is to know Jesus Christ. Well, so let me conclude by asking these three questions. What, or rather, do you know Jesus Christ? We're talking about the need to proclaim Him. But if you're here this morning, do you know Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? And if not, what could be so important that you would not flee to Him right now as we pray together? Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank You, first of all, that You helped my voice to hold out um, to the end of this sermon. Secondly, God... I ask that you would help us to be a praying church. That we would learn what it means to lean upon you completely in prayer. Father, help us to be driven by our knees, to our knees, by the urgent need to reach people with the gospel of our Lord Jesus who do not know him. And lastly, Father, I pray that if there are any here who do not know Him, I pray that they would seek You in the silence of their hearts right now and cry out to You and cast themselves on Jesus Christ. I pray in His name. Amen.